Good morning, everyone. Feels like a mass exodus when the children all depart. My name is Emily, and this morning I am going to just read our passage and uh, take some time to pray through different things. So, um, I'll just give everybody a wee second to come back in. I'm going to pray. Father God, we humbly bow before you. We come as your people to acknowledge that you are the sovereign God. That you hold everything in your hand. And Father, as your church in this place, we know that we are part of your church across this global, it's just a global thing. So we know this morning, Father, that we are not just on our own, but Father, we join with your people from every tribe and every tongue. And Father, we pray that what we do here will be acceptable to you. Father, when we think of this world, Father, we can get so disillusioned. We can get so overwhelmed. Because, Father, there is pain and there is suffering at every turn. Father, when we think of, of the things that are going on, how humans suffer at the hands of evil, beyond our comprehension. Father, when we think of lands that are torn with war, we think of people who are starving, we think of children who are abused beyond what we can even cope with. We can fall under it. But this morning, Father, we turn to a sovereign God. Father, we ask that the message of hope that is Jesus will reach the people that need to hear. That people who are suffering and broken will turn to you. That they will know that their suffering is not in vain. They will experience a relationship with the holy God, what they were created for. Father, we ask that you would move in this world. We know that you hold it all together and we pray, Lord, that you will just be continuing to bring people into relationship with you. Father, we think of this town. Father, we think of the brokenness that we are guilty of shutting our eyes to. It's easy to look the other way. So as a church, we ask for forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see with your eyes, to see the brokenness in this town, and that we would be people willing to declare the hope of the gospel, willing to have Jesus on our lips very, very readily, because you are the answer. You are the answer to the hurt in this room, you are the answer to everything that robs our peace and our joy. You are the answer to our biggest need. You paid the price for our sin that we couldn't pay. So we bring nothing to you this morning. We come empty-handed. And as we come empty-handed to your word, Father, I pray that you would clothe us that you would feed us. Father, as we stand on the truth of your word this morning, Father, may you speak. May you speak to our children. May you speak in this room. Because this is truth. All else is falling away. 
all else is just rotten to the core. So I pray, Father, as we come to your word, that you will equip John, that you will just help him to declare the truth that he has prepared this week. Holy Spirit, have your way. Amen. As we come to God's word this morning, we are in Romans, and we are reading from verse 9. Let your love be genuine. Sorry, it's Romans 12. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent, fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not come overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you, Emily, for that. Uh, it is good to be back with you this morning. As I say, after a few weeks' break, uh, we're doing. Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning in Romans 12, and then next week we are beginning our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, looking forward to that. But today we're in Romans 12. I want to ask you the most profound question you've ever heard in all of your life uh, as we begin today. No doubt it will be the most profound question you've ever heard, and it's this. What makes a thing a thing? It's very philosophical for a Sunday morning. What makes a thing a thing? Uh, well, what makes a thing a thing is that it does what a thing is supposed to do. What makes a thing a thing is that it does what a thing is supposed to do. Let me extrapolate that because you look confused. I'll be honest. Right. A piano, for example, is a piano because it does piano-y things. Yes? Uh, a chair is a chair because it does chair-y things. Now, we would run into difficulty if the piano started doing guitar-y things. It wouldn't be legit. It wouldn't be real. No, a piano is a piano because it does piano-y things. A chair is a chair because it does cherry things. If it did something else, it wouldn't be a chair. Apply that to whatever you want. But the thing is this. It's exactly the same with being a Christian. It's exactly the same with being a Christian. A Christian is a Christian, the marks of a Christian, because it does what? Christian-y things. Now, I need to be clear. Let me be clear. How are we made Christians? What makes us Christians is the belief in the gospel. We know this. I hope we know this. What makes us Christians is a belief. Uh, we're putting our all in the fact that Jesus came, 
Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve. He, he, he rose from the grave. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again for the church. What makes us a Christian is we believe in that. But what then? But what then? As Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer, said this, we are saved by grace alone. That is that belief in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's grace alone, imputed to us. We don't deserve that. We're given that, right? But Martin Luther said this, we are saved by grace alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Grace that saves is never alone. And what this section of Romans is doing here, and if you've got your Bible open in front of you, and I hope you do, actually, can we just make this a thing from now on, if we can in Cornerstone, that we bring our Bibles to church. I want you to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can see what I'm saying is in the text. In this section, we can see if we've got it open in front of us, the title, and I, I was very original with my sermon title this morning, you'll see it's marked, the, the little heading above this section is Marks of the True Christian. Marks of the True Christian. That's what the sermon is entitled this morning. Very original. I'm very good like that. I can come up with stuff myself. All right? You see what I've done? No? Marks of the True Christian. So what comes next is going to tell us what the real deal looks like. What the real deal looks like. Not a fake thing, not a piano trying to be a guitar. Not a chair trying to be something that it's not. But a Christian being a Christian. That's what's going to follow. Marks of a real, true Christian. First of all, let me give you the context of Romans because it's important. Really important that we get the context of Romans this morning before we get into Romans 12. It's important that we see this because it will help with the gravity of what comes next. The church in Rome, which Paul writes this letter to, who Paul writes this letter to, is a church that he's never actually been to. But the church in Rome is made up of people from a Jewish descent, and also from a gent Gentiles, people not from Jewish descent. And so what we have in Rome, in this church, in these churches that were gathered in Rome, were people from different, uh, different backgrounds. People who, I want you to imagine this, I want you to get this into your head this morning because it's really, really important. You have people who have lived all their lives believing that they are God's chosen people. Uh, because they were. The Jews. And so you have people from that background in the church thinking, we're God's chosen people. We've always been, we always will be, that's the way it is. And then you have these Gentile outsiders who, who have been grafted in, 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 the, in the language of Romans, grafted into the church and brought into the church. Now, put those two groups of people together. I imagine there might be some debates as to how, churches go, how a church goes, yes? You understand? There's, well, we're the Jews. We've known for, 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 we've been chosen by God to be God's people. We know how church goes. We've been doing this for years, right? You have them. And then you have the, the Gentile outsiders who are coming in all fresh. And they're coming in with their, 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 their hands up worship type stuff, you know? They're the, they're, the, they're, the, they're the Pentecostals amongst us. And you have these two groups of people mixed in a church going, right, okay, how does this all work out? It's a bit like bringing people from all different denominations together in one church and expecting no one to think that, you know, or expecting to think that they're the one who knows the way the church service should go. Now, I wouldn't know anything about that or what that would look like as I look out across a room of people from every single denomination in the land who all bring their baggage in here and who all think they know how the church service should go. 
I wouldn't know anything about that, you know. But that's what it's like. That's what you have in Rome. You have these different groups of people all coming together, and, and, and they don't know how it goes. And, and there's been some tension. And you can understand why. That's why in Paul's first part of Romans, for the whole of the first part of Romans up until 12, he has done a, a, a deep dive into the gospel. Because that is the thing that holds us together. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans explaining, going deep into the gospel, so that these different groups of people get the fact that this is what's important. The gospel is the thing that's important, and this is what unites. Let me read to you from, from Romans 1, 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was to, he's straight in, straight into the gospel. In the opening lines of Romans, he's straight in. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. There you go, that's it. And the apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. You can see it there from the beginning. Paul, just, it's the gospel that unites us. It's the gospel that unites us. He starts with the gospel. It is the very basis of there being a church at all. the very basis for unity. And so then when we read the verses, when we read through these, these verses through that lens, they take on a different significance. They take on a different significance. And he opens up in chapter, well, he, he comes to this part in chapter 12, marks of the true Christian, and he says this, let love be genuine. Translated in the Greek, the literal Greek, means this, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Paul is telling us that the follower of Jesus has a sincere and genuine type of love. He's telling us that Christians must really love, actually love, not superficially. Paul before in Romans 8 has emphasized, and now he's emphasizing it again in Romans 12, that the believer is set free to what? To love. The believer is set free not to do as he pleases, not to do nothing at all, not simply to be, but the Christian is set free to love. see, Paul's words in the New Testament about Christian freedom are not to be set over against responsibility. Christian freedom, this is, this is important, Christian freedom is for the purpose of responsibility. Christian freedom actually cultivates, enables, and prompts the Christian to responsibility. So we need to be really careful when we think about Christian freedom. Uh, because when, when the world we live in hears freedom, the world we live in hears no responsibility. That's not what Paul means when he's talking about Christian freedom. That's the very last thing that would have entered into the Apostle Paul's head, actually, when he talks about Christian freedom. We are freed to love, and we are freed to love genuinely, without hypocrisy. Given that we're to love as Christians, what does, it, what does it mean to love? What is that love like? What does it look like? Because you can, I can take you anywhere in the world today and, and any culture in the world today, and they will say that they believe in love. 
but very few people will actually agree on what that love looks like. And that's why we're thankful we have the Bible that tells us very clearly what love is and what it looks like. 1 John 4.16 says this, So we have come to know and to believe the love of God that the love of God has, has us. God, listen to this, God is love. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So if we want to know what genuine love, the, the love that Paul is talking about here to the Romans, let love be genuine. If we want to know what that looks like, surely we look to the genuine source of that love, and the genuine source of that love is God. God himself. And if we're to know if our love is genuine, surely we need to look and see then and how our love compares to his love. This is, this is, this is important, folks. This is, this is marks of the true Christian. And we are in here this morning, and we want to know. I, I'm sure you want to know. I want to know. Am I, am I legit? And so if we want to know, let love be genuine, and we want to know if we've got that genuine love, we need to look at the source of love and see how our love compares to that. So let me, let me just do that for a moment. How does God love? How does he display his love and how should we display our love then if our love is like his? I just want to go through a few things about the way that God loves and then we can see, we can decide, we can ask the questions if our love is genuine. Let me read Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God showed his love for us. Whilst we were still sinners, God showed his love for us and gave his life for us. You see, the way that God loves and the way that we are to love, if you're making notes, this is the first one of these three points about how God loves and how we should love. God, God's love is not dependent on reciprocation. God's love is not dependent on reciprocation. What do I mean by that? You see, in that verse, it shows us that God lo- showed us love when what? We had nothing to offer him. Nothing. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, when we were still in our, in our depraved, natural state, he showed love for us. With nothing to offer him. When we were still in our most depraved, messed up state, he loved us. We had nothing to bring. We had nothing to offer. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are to love the same way. We are to love people without the expectation of reciprocation. They have nothing to offer us. So much of our love is dependent on what the other person brings to us. And we're not to love like that. God did not love like that. We are not to love like that. It means we are to love without the expectation of anything in return. Now, is that your love? Is that my love? Or is our love or is our attention, the attention we give people or the love we give people, based on the fact that we will gain something in return? Do we love people just because we think we will benefit from it 
Or is it because we love them? God's love is not dependent on reciprocation, nor should ours be. Again, we see, this, our, my second point in this is that he loved us while we were still sinners. When we were not like him. When we were not like him. Genuine love in the context of the church loves those that are not like them. Paul backs up this in, in verse 16 here. He says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Like, obviously there's been something going on here in the church in Rome, or in the churches in Rome, where there's been some sort of form of segregation where one group keeps themselves to themselves, and the other group keeps themselves to themselves. Whatever. Paul is saying, don't be like that. Love people who are not like you. Well, John, I love everyone in the church. Really. Really. Let me ask you, who do you spend your time with? Who do you speak to after church? Is it the same every week, more or less? Who do you invite into your home? Is it people like you? Is it people who you think you will benefit from? Is it people who are just good crack? Or is it everyone? Is it everyone? Is it people not like you? God's love is not dependent on reciprocation. And it loves people who are different. Third point. God showed his love for us. That while we were still sinners. Third point. He initiates. He initiates. God showed his love for us. He took the first step. He went the, the, the extra mile. He made the first move. He initiates. But John, no one speaks to me in church. No one cares about me in church. No one fill in the blanks. Do you make the first move? Do you initiate? Do I initiate? Do I, do I go? Do I, do I seek out? Do I, like, trust me, trust me, folks. I am 100% preaching to myself this morning. And you, by the way, just so you're not, just, just so you think, just, just in case. Do you go? Do I go? Do I initiate? Do I go and speak to someone who I never spoke to before? Do I make them feel part of the church here? Do I, or is it just about me? cares about me. No one speaks to me. Let love be genuine. Let it be like that of the Father. Let it be like the one who took the first step and gave his life for us while we were different from him. When we had nothing to offer. And we had nothing to offer. Sometimes, sometimes I genuinely think we don't think through this. <laughs> sometimes I genuinely think we're sitting here and we think we had something to bring to the table. Like as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, how many of you were wise? How many of you were of noble birth? That's right, zero. And yet God took the first step and God brought us in. Let love be genuine. First mark of a true believer, genuine love. Second mark of a true believer, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. The second mark of a true Christian is someone who hates evil and holds on tightly to what is good. 
Now, you might think that's a little bit strange because Paul has just literally, Paul has just told us to have genuine love. And here he comes with a second statement about hate. Let love be genuine, but, but hate what is evil. Well, you see, this is really a, it's a continuation of a demonstration of how God actually loves. Again, a misunderstanding of the world we live in today is to be that, well, if you really love things, if you really love, then you can't hate. It's impossible. Wrong. Wrong. It's just not true. Again, God is the source of love, and yet he hates sin. He hates it. He hates it, and he calls those who love him to hate it also. Let me just read to you from Psalm 5, in case you think I'm making that up, that he hates sin. Let me, let me read Psalm 5, verse 6, 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, here's that word again, abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. The word abhor here in, in the Old Testament Psalm and in Paul, when Paul's writing here in Romans means an extreme repugnance or hatred or loathing. So the mark of a true Christian, the one who is a genuine disciple of Jesus, is someone who hates evil. Who hates it. We live in a world, uh, it's just ever going on this trajectory, it's, that's where it's heading. We live in a world where we see the opposite of this playing out. We live in a world where we see the, op the exact thing that Isaiah said in Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. We see that play out in the world that we're living in today. That's where we are. We see it all the time where the evil thing is being called the good thing, and the good thing is being called the evil thing. Like, if you hold today to the Bible's sexual ethic, you are considered evil. If you hold today to the Bible's stance on life, you are considered evil. The world deems you to be evil because you want to protect life. The world calls you evil because you hold the Bible's stance on sexuality. That's where we are. We see it all the time. Evil is called good, good is called evil. And so on and so on, and we see this in the world around us. But here's the thing. This text in Romans 12, is not to the world around us. This text, we, we, it's, very, it's actually very easy. Because it would be like shooting fish in a barrel this morning. If I was to go, isn't it the world's such a bad place? The world's such a, they're, they're, they're calling evil good, and they're calling good evil, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and they're, aren't they, aren't, isn't, isn't everything up the left out in the world? And you'd be all like, yeah. like shooting fish in a barrel. But what about the sin that lies within us? What about the sin in our hearts? What about the evil that, that is going on within us? You see, Paul is saying here, we are to hate the sin and the evil that lies within us every bit, if not more, than the, the, the evil that is going on out there. We are to hate the sin in our lives. 
But you see, it's my experience, and it probably is your experience too, if we're honest, and I find myself guilty, is that we are more than happy to minimalize the sin in our own lives whilst we point to the big sins of the world or we blow up the sins in other people. We are more than happy to minimalize the sin in our own lives whilst we declare the sin that is in the world and blow up the sin that we see in others. Seriously, though, what about the gossip that we call the crack? What about the excessive consumption of alcohol we call Christian freedom? What about the TV and the Netflix we indulge ourselves in and think we can handle it, and yet it infiltrates our minds and penetrates our hearts, and it is wicked and evil? But you're only watching TV. As I say, in my experience, and I think it will be your experience too, that we're more than happy to laugh at it or make little of it than we are to hate it and to loathe it. Paul says here, the true Christian will hate, abhor all evil, and they will cling to what is good. They will cling to what is good. Let me just read another passage from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 3, 1 to 10. Here's the question. Notice this. It is a question. If you have been raised with Christ, let me ask you, have you been raised with Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus? If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Set our minds on things that are above, not on earth below, and cling to that, the Apostle Paul says. Is our love genuine? Do we hate evil and cling to what is good? Third mark, love is affectionately devoted. In, in verse 10 here we see, again, I'll just say now at this point and give you some relief, that uh, we are not going through verses 9 to 21 all, just so you know. We're literally just covering verse 9, probably down to about 13, thankfully. Uh, Thirdly, in verse 10 here, Paul says, love is this love that we are to have. He explains it in the, in the terms, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love one another with this brotherly affection. Or do one another in showing honor. What we're told by historians and, and, and Christian uh, historians and, and the early church fathers is that there is no other, no other world religion that has this ingrained 
uh, idea of this sibling affection, this sibling, this brotherly love that exists those who are not related to one another. This idea of brotherly sibling uh, love that we have in the Christian community is, is not drawn together, as I say, it's not drawn together by bloodlines, it's not drawn together by ethnicity, it's not drawn together by socioeconomic background, it's nothing other than the gospel. That's what brings us together and that's what holds us together. It is entirely unique. And I, I think sometimes we take it for granted. Now, to be honest, and I might as well, I'll just be honest with you, I don't feel overly qualified to be talking about this type of sibling love for obvious reasons. Uh, only child, and some of you now are, uh, maybe didn't know I was an only child, now you're going, oh, that's why. Oh, yeah, yeah, see you now, see you now. Right. Uh, only child, don't necessarily feel qualified to, to talk on this sibling type of, of love. But, and, there are, and let me say, there's always exceptions to the rule. Uh, some sibling relationships can be difficult, to say the least. But a cliche is a cliche for a reason. Blood is thicker than water is a cliche for a reason. Because when a sibling relationship is right and good, there is probably nothing more beautiful in the world that love that they have for one another. And the Apostle Paul here is saying that that kind of love, when it's right, should be the way the Christian church operates. There ought to be, like the example from the Old Testament, where David and Jonathan were best of friends. They had a brotherly affection for one another, even though they were not related. Proverbs says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and that's what Paul's trying to get at here. He's trying to get at this type of affection that there should be in the church for one another. There ought to be these kinds of relationships in the church. One commentator puts it uh, this way in a phrase, and it's very hopeful, but I want you to listen to it. The Christian church is the one place on earth where it should be possible, and that word is massive in there, should be possible. The, the Christian church is the one place on earth where it should be possible to trust one another's love and loyalty without being hurt. Now, I want to say a couple of things about that phrase. First, I want to exhort us to be a church like that. That is the aspiration. There's no getting away from that. That's, the, that's where we want to be. We want to be a church where, where we have those brother, those sibling-type relationships where we can be honest and open with each other without the fear of being hurt. We must strive to be a church like that, a place where love and loyalty is, the, the love and loyalty is so strong that it is a safe place for people to be. But I'm not stupid. I want to flip that and say this. If you have found the opposite in the church, and you've been wounded in the church, and you've been shown disloyalty and maybe even dismissal in the context of the church, I want to urge you not to become cynical. Because that is the easiest place to go to turn to cynicism when we've been hurt. But the reality is this. If you have been hurt in church, the reality shouldn't surprise you. After all, we are all sinners. As Augustine once said, the church is a hospital where sick sinners get well. And it shouldn't surprise us when we don't live up to the, 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 the aspiration or live up to the vision that we have here. But here's what I'm going to say to you and here's what I say to myself. You strive. You strive to make sure that Cornerstone Church is a place where at least with you Love and loyalty can be experienced in such a way that people are safe. You strive for it.
I'll strive for it. And we will fall and we will fail, but we will strive for it together. Brotherly affection. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Finally, Paul says a true Christian is outward focused. Let me just read the text. He says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And then he says this, Do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. What he's saying is this, if love is genuine, if we, if we hate evil, we love what is good, we hold on to that, it faces us outwards rather than inwards. It faces us outwards. Look at a couple of the phrases there. Serve the Lord. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Those are all outward postures. They're not inward. They're not about me. They're all, they're all outward. What can I do? How can I help? One of the most one of the most encouraging things we get to see as elders sometimes are people who just, people who minister in the church, not because they want a title, not because they want status, not because they want to be recognized, not because they want a plaque on the wall somewhere, but because they just genuinely love people. That's one of the most encouraging things we get to see. People just because of the love that they have for Christ and the love they have for the church, they just want to serve without any recognition and without any fuss and just get on with it. That's, that's unbelievably encouraging. And Paul is basically saying here, if you genuinely love, if you love like God wants you to, you will find yourself forgetting yourself. If you love like God wants you to, you will find yourself forgetting yourself. And you will selflessly prefer others' needs over your own. That's the text. That is, I am not unaware that is a hard-hitting text this morning. But it is the text. I'm not going to apologize for the text being the text. But I do realize this. We cannot do this on our own. Any of it. We cannot have genuine love on our own. We cannot have, we cannot abhor evil the way we should and hold fast to what is good on our own. We, we, we can't show brotherly affection the way we should on our own. We can't, you know, be fervent in the spirit. We can't rejoice in hope. We can't be patient in tribulation. We can't be constant, constant prayer. We can't contribute to the needs of the saints and we can't show hospitality the way we should on our own. It is impossible. Jesus said in John 15, without me, you, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to, this is going to be our mantra as a church from now on. Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So we need his help desperately. Now to go back to the start, we have his help if we are in Christ. And the only way we have his help is through the gospel. It's through believing in what he has done, putting our whole lives on the fact that he has paid the price for us and sent the Holy Spirit to give us the help that we need. But I want to say this this morning. I want to ask us a question because I don't think it's right to just take it away. 
are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? In the light of what we have just read, and in the honesty of your own heart, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, are you a Christian? Unfortunately, I have no doubt there are people in this room who think they're Christians and they are not. Let the Holy Spirit speak. Let him convict. Let him lead you to repentance and confession. Let him lead you to Jesus. This, this is not enough. Being busy in the church is not enough. None of that is enough. Jesus, Jesus is enough. Faith in Christ is enough. Let's get back to basics. Faith in Jesus. We'll start there. We'll start there. Faith in Christ is enough. Let me pray for us and I'll lead us in communion. Father, the words that we have just read from your scriptures are hard for us today. And the reason they're hard for us today is because they're so easily understood. They are plain. There is nothing complicated about them. There's nothing to try and figure out. They're plain. So Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would seek our hearts, search our hearts, lead us to repentance, lead us to faith in Christ so that we might know what it is to joyfully do the thing that we're supposed to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.